We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. You're listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that brings you science, technology, engineering and maths content from the small island, bringing you big science from the small island of Tasmania. The show is proudly supported by Edge Radio, Hobart's premium youth station. So go to edgeradio.org.au to hear more about what they're doing. My name is Neve Chapman. I'm joined by my co-host Kate Johnson and our expert guest today is Dr. David Hamilton. I'd always like to begin our episodes by acknowledging and paying my respects to the traditional owners of the country on which our listeners are where we gather today um, in Lutruwita, Tasmania, to record this episode. I pay my respects to the Palawa people, the traditional owners of the land, and their elders past and present. I'd like to acknowledge that I stand for a future that respects and acknowledges Aboriginal perspectives, culture, language, and history. So Kate, what's our episode about today? So today we're joined by David Hamilton, and he's a behavioural ecologist at the University of Tasmania. He studies devil facial tumour disease, abbreviated to DFTD, with a focus on how devil behaviour affects the spread of the disease. So it's really great to have you on the show, David. And I know from your amazing pictures and videos on Twitter that you spent some time in the field with our gorgeous Tasmanian fauna, and we're really excited to hear about your research. But would you start off by telling us what the devil facial tumour disease is? Sure thing, yeah. Uh, thanks for having me in the first place. And um, so devil facial tumour disease is a transmissible form of cancer that's been affecting devils since the mid-90s was when we first discovered it. So it's basically a cancer line that's been spreading from devil to devil over that time. Um, the, a transmissible cancer in itself is unusual because normally cancer is restricted to the, to the one body. But in this case, it's able to transfer from one devil to another devil. And basically that line has been continuing since it was first discovered in 1996, spreading through devil populations. <coughs> and yeah, the cancer takes hold of the devil and then eventually um, tumours present in and around the face and the, the animal uh, passes away from either. The just the immune system shuts down or it's, it's unable to feed. So it's a pretty, pretty nasty disease that's been affecting our poor devils for, for a long time now. So there's a lot of research going into um, looking at how exactly it's doing what it does and um, things that we can do to try and help the devils as best we can um, as a result of that. So way back in our early days, we did uh, an episode with Dr. Andy Fleece, but it was live, so I'm not even sure if we have it on podcast version, but if we do, we'll share it. But I'm just wanted to confirm, did it start with like one devil that where maybe they had like a mutation and then it transferred? And are those cells essentially transferring and then dividing on the face or are they actually changing the cells on the devil that gets the... In the way, it is the cells from the original devil that are in other devils and now reproducing. So you can, there's genetic signatures within the cells that we get in, even in devils today. We can tell it's DFTD because they have some genetic content that's going right back to that individual devil. Wow. So the cells get into the, get into the body of the other devil and then they replicate in there. And then they grow and grow and become bigger and bigger tumours. But they are all traceable back to that original individual up in uh, Wakalina, Mount William, in the northeast of Tasmania. Uh, we know she was a female, um, but we don't know much more about her beyond that. But yeah, they're all, all traced back to that one individual, which is which is insane when you think about it. Yeah, it's so phenomenal. Yeah. But also that like the growth more so is like located to where the transmissions occurred and then it grows from like it's those cells dividing themselves? It looks like that's the, the main the main way that it that it's spreading. So they, they, they bite one another in and around the face a lot. And that's where the majority of tumours start to turn up. So they have lots mm -hmm. of injuries around their face. So the 
the working theory is that we think there's two ways that it can transmit. So either an animal bites another animal in the face, creates a wound. The animal that caused the bite has DFTD. Some of the tumour cells from that animal get into the wound and then they just start to proliferate from there. Or an animal that's undiseased, biting another devil in and around the face, bites into a big tumour, it gets some uh, tumour cells into its mouth, it's got cuts and things in its mouth, and then they get into those cuts and then they start spreading from that point. So we wow. think both those forms of transmission are possible and, and likely, and either of them would, would be a, an entryway for the, the disease to get into a new host. And is it likely that they could have both forms of transmission, or is it more likely that there would only be one predominant form of transmission? That's a very good question. That, that's something that we're, we're trying to dig down into with some of our research, but it's a really difficult thing to pinpoint, because you, you basically have to pinpoint the exact point of transmission in uh, the case of a devil getting the disease, which you'd have to observe it interacting with another devil. You'd have to see when the bite wound was caused and see how the bite wound was caused and things like that. So it's a difficult thing to dig down into. So we're not sure exactly what the proportion of both of them happening is. Um, yeah, likelihood it's it's probably 50-50 between the two of them, but that's just a, a, mm. a figure I picked out from my head. So, so I guess that's really um, a bit different to a lot of other cancers in the in the terms of the fact it's transmissible, like you were saying. So in terms of your research, what sort of aspects of devil behaviour do you study to kind of try and understand how the disease spreads through devil populations? Yeah, so the, the way the disease spreads is very much linked back to behaviour because the way that they're interacting with one another is what is effectively causing the spread of the cancer. So when they're having these say, social interactions, they're obviously very aggressive interactions in that they're causing bite wounds. But the, when they're having these interactions with one another, that's when the cancer is able to transmit between individuals. So a lot of my research is using has been using proximity loggers, which is when we, we put collars on devils, basically, and then we can tell when they're within a certain distance of one another. So we set them up so that they're going off at a distance when two devils are within 30 centimetres of one another, which is effectively close enough to bite one another. So we know how many interactions they're having with other devils in the population, and then we can look at that in tandem with the number of bite wounds that they're picking up and then see whether particular individuals within a population are particularly vulnerable to picking up the FTD because they're interacting with lots of other devils, they're picking up lots of bite wounds while they're doing it, and then they're the individuals that you're looking at being potential what we call super spreaders within the population that are just going around and biting every other devil <laughs> and interacting with every other devil and causing a causing a big a big mess when they're doing it because they're you know <laughs> spreading yeah, def- right. DFTD through the whole population. So there's a lot. Yeah, the, 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 it's a disease that's very much intrinsically linked to behaviour. So behaviour is a, an interesting thing to study in the framework of of looking at this disease and it helps us understand it better. David, our listeners might be familiar with like some discussion around the origin of diseases, particularly in this year. Yeah, I think, yeah maybe just a little bit. Yeah, it's been and, and I've when we previously talked about the um, devil facial tumour, I was really interested in potential mechanisms of how it first started that mutation in the first one. I wonder yeah. if I can lure you to postulate or uh, yeah, think about. Yeah, I mean that's that's absolutely not my my specific area of of, um, of knowledge. But from from what we know, it looks like. There have been some studies done. So basically this transmissible cancer has cropped up twice in devils now. So we have DFTD, the original disease, and then we have DFT2, which is the exact same thing has happened basically in a different part of the island, origin from a different animal. Was it a female again? It was a male this time. Okay, interesting. Um, And one of the primary things we know is they present exactly the same, but devil facial tumour disease 1, DFT1, is predominantly in and around the face. But in DFT2... There are more devils. There are more tumors that crop up around the body, so that's the one of the main differences that we found between them in terms of expression. 
But the, it's the main thing I was going into there was that the, the fact that this has happened twice in Devil suggests it might be something that they're inherently vulnerable to mm-hmm. because they have this, basically, they have a good transmission pathway for the disease because they bite one another, they cause bite wounds, you have an entryway for a foreign cell to get into the body, which is a helpful transmission mechanism for something like a transmissible cancer that we're seeing here. And so basically the, the cells around their face are getting hammered all the time, which potentially makes them a bit more prone to mutation. That was my interest was like with this constant kind of trauma mm. on the tissue. Yeah, and I just kind of wondered if maybe all of this biting was causing mm. scarring, if we saw that scar tissue develop over time. But yeah, absolutely. So, so if you get older devils in the population, they have often big accumulations of scar tissue in and around their jowls. Oh, wow. Which is, so either sides, of the, either sides of the face. And that's from previous fights with other devils, so they're getting big scars around there, they're having chunks of flesh ripped off, so it, it looks it looks like hell, basically. They have these these big scarred faces, and that's, as you say, <coughs> is tissue that's going to be potentially more vulnerable to having, when it's coming back, to having some kind of mutation. So the fact that it's arisen in the first place, and the fact that that's where we see the disease present most often, is in and around the face, and this area that's getting scarred, suggests that it's exactly what you're saying there, that it is more inherently vulnerable and that's so interesting. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We've been talking about the Tasmanian devil facial tumour, but David's research is about devil behaviour. So stay with us and in just a moment we'll be talking more about what he's specifically doing. You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to behavioural ecologist David Hamilton about his research into DFTD and animal behaviour. David, you talked a little bit about studying the specific sort of interactions that um, devils have with each other. What other sorts of methods do you use to understand what's going on in these devil populations in terms of the disease? We do monitoring of devil populations on a seasonal basis basically. Because one of the things that we're looking at is whether there's differences in seasonal vulnerability to things like DFTD. And we know that there's a seasonal spike in when they become vulnerable to the disease because they're having all these aggressive... The, their devil's mating season is between February and about the middle of April. And that's the point where they pick up lots of bite wounds, where they're having these super aggressive mating interactions that devils have with one another. They're, they're extremely aggressive when they're... Um, having these mating interactions, both the males and the females. Both the males and the females get wounded at those points and both the males and the females are particularly vulnerable to picking up DFTD at those points, we think. So there's a very seasonal aspect to how vulnerable they are to it and there may be seasonal cycles to things like their immune function, things as well. So it's a established pattern in dasyurids, which the devils are big members of. So the desiurids are the marsupial carnivores. So things like antichinases, these little marsupial mice and quolls and things like that are all are all desiurids. And they have these crazy mating systems where the males go absolutely mental for um, a few weeks during the mating season and don't eat at all during that period, just try to mate with as many females as they can and their immune system goes off a cliff. And then in things smaller than devils, they be, they, the males don't make it through the mating season. So antichinases will live like one year, mate once, and then and then that's it. So devils are a less extreme version of that, but the males are in, the females as well, but the males particularly are in horrific condition after the mating season. So they're, they haven't bothered to look after themselves in terms of eating, in terms of properly functioning their body to do anything apart from mating. So their immune system is, has gone off a cliff. And then that also is potentially heightening their vulnerability to picking up DFTD, which they've been involved in these aggressive interactions 
with females, they potentially become vulnerable to it. If they've got cells into the body and their immune system is crapped out, then that's not a good combination, basically. That, that seasonal monitoring is, is a big part of, of what we do in looking at devil populations at different times of year. And we have a good long-term data set as well that we've been looking at these devil populations at various stages of DFTD invasion for um, a number of years now. So we have a few sites across the island that have had DFTD for various amounts of time, from in excess of 20 years to a population that was just invaded by DFTD this year. So being able to look at those different populations and what's happening in those populations and how devil populations are changing over time and adapting to the disease or not adapting to the disease in some cases, depending on, on where you are. So it gives you this nice snapshot, Tasmania-wide, of um, what is happening with these animals' interaction with facial tumour disease. So as a medical scientist, I have like no idea how you know all of that stuff. So how do you, like, when you go out into the field, what do you do? Do you just, like hang out and hope you see a devil like how do you <laughs> and what are you looking for to try and understand their behaviors like yeah. so that I'm guessing you want to know how often they're fighting and all that kind of stuff but like how do you actually find that stuff out yeah no, that's a very good question can't, you so, can't so just ask them <laughs> when we're doing standard monitoring we have to actually physically um handle the animals and catch the animals so we don't just go out and, and look for devils and see what's happening we put a set of um if there's specially designed uh, traps for for monitoring devils these big Basically, they're, they're big white tubes that the devils go into. They pull a bit of meat in the end, door closes, and then we've got a devil, and we can have a look at the devil and see if it's got any signs of devil facial tumour disease, if it's in good condition, if it's brooding, we can look at all sorts of things. So we go out to these populations and try and catch as many devils as we can over a period of about 10 days, and then look at, um, look at how they're looking and whether they're symptomatic of the disease or not. So, so do you have to try and get them at different time points too? Like, so that you know if you're looking at the same devil... Before, yeah, so after the mating season. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, so, so when when we catch them, we give them a little subcutaneous micro microchip. So, just like you would your dog or your cat yeah. gets, so you can identify them. We just give them a scan, and we go, "Oh, this is um, whatever number, Bill. whatever different <laughs> Bill." Yeah, we we give them names as well to make it a bit easier. So, <laughs> yeah, but this is this is this devil that we've seen many times before. You have devils that you turn up at your populations time and time again. That they're always very easy to catch, and then some that are a bit more wary. So, there's individuals you get very familiar with. So. It can be it's a bit difficult in that aspect sometimes. So you see these animals from when they're very tiny and then you, they're fine for a couple of years and then they start to pick up facial tumour disease. And it's, that yeah. can be a not very fun aspect of it to see these animals you're, you're familiar with not doing so well. Do you have to wear PPE? I mean, having a devil in like a catch, I'm picturing some <laughs> sort of hardcore bee suit. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is a common misconception thing with devils. So we wear PPE, but it is mainly to prevent transmission of disease between the devils as a to direct protection of ourselves so devils are are extremely um chilled out in the majority of the time when we catch them so people assume that you're going to catch a devil you're going to have this spitting and hissing thing this trap shaking around and you have to um sedate it or like hold it down to be able to do anything but they're extremely chilled out extremely calm when we catch them wow they just pop them in a bag you keep their eyes covered and you can have they, they let us open up their mouths and look in their mouth check under their tongue see if there's any signs of tumours anywhere, and they're, yeah, they're extremely, extremely um, easy to handle compared to a lot of other animals. Do they I've like a belly rub? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't tried to give them a belly rub, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't object to it. <laughs> I don't think they'd be fine with it. Because, yeah, I've, I've done work on other species, and, like, if you catch tiny birds or little lizards or things, they're trying to bite you and they're trying to get away, but devils 
response just seems to be to freeze. <laughs> like if I just freeze, then they'll just they'll go away eventually, and then I can just run I off. I mean, they're right, and they're right. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> that makes it easy for us. I mean, we can quickly look at them, just let them go, and then they just run off. So it works perfectly for them as well. Perhaps yeah. not so much aptly named then the devil. <laughs> yeah, well, the name entirely relates back to the noise that they make as opposed ah. to anything to do with their behavior or their interactions with humans yeah, that, right. um europeans came across here um, whenever and heard this screaming sound <laughs> off in the forest <laughs> like it, I, I think most people are familiar with the kind of noises the devils make when they're feeding mm. and they scream at one another and they heard this noise off in the forest and went <laughs> well that, that sounds like the devil himself and then saw this like Cute little black and white animal trotting out of the bush and probably <laughs> felt a little bit silly, but they'd already named it by that point, so it, it stuck with it now. Yeah, it is funny. I remember the first time I camped in Tasmania hearing that noise. I was like, oh my God, that's so scary. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a scary noise. Like, yeah, you wouldn't, sure. And then you, they, they, the animal you see is not the animal you expect for doing making it as well, so it's quite funny. No. You're listening to That's What I Call Science. Stay tuned in just a moment, and we'll be talking about something called species translocation, but what on earth could that be? You're listening to That's What I Call Science and today we're talking to behavioural ecologist David Hamilton about his work and also about the idea of species translocations. So David, we want to talk to you about this topic, but would you first tell us what a species translocation is? Um, So a a translocation, basically the word itself means moving something from one place to another. So a translocation can either be to supplement a population that's endangered that's not doing so well and um, so you breed some individuals in captivity and you take them to the place where they're not doing so well and then you supplement that population basically but the one of the other forms of translocations is basically kind of rewilding and reintroducing animals into areas that they used to occur but they don't occur anymore rewilding is a word they use for a lot of the time i think where you're, yeah, you're taking the species that used to occur in the environment it's there's a hole in that environment now basically because the animal's not there anymore and you breed them up in captivity wherever they're still there and take them back to, to where they previously used to occur and yeah, hope that they have some kind of positive ecological effect. <laughs> is this the is, is the population of devils in at Mariah Island an example of that, or is that something different? Yeah, that's very much a translocation. So, so, so this is, devils are struggling on the mainland of Tasmania with devil facial tumour disease, so the idea with re, um, translocating some to Mariah Island was that that would pre- represent an area where that devil facial tumour disease couldn't invade because there's an impassable strait between mm. devils aren't going to be swimming between the mainland Tasmania and, and Mariah Island. So it was a population that was going to be safe from facial tumour disease. So that's a, another kind of different use for a translocation there as well. That was to protect a source population that was in an area that was under threat from another outside factor too. Recently there's been some suggestions that Tasmania might be suitable habitat for koalas who are becoming restricted in their... Um, in their their habitat on the mainland. And there's also been suggestions, I think, in the past about the relocation of Tasmanian devils to mainland Australia. Could you tell us a little bit about what sorts of things need to be considered before a translocation like this could or should take place? Absolutely. Well, it it depends on what the aim of your translocation is, I suppose, because it's always going to be, in the case of devils going into the mainland, it's a fact you you have to think about two things. So one of the main things you have to think about is, is the animal suitably adapted to be living in that environment, for one thing. So if we translocate, if we translocated devils into the middle of the Great Sandy Desert, then obviously they're not going to do very well because they, they're from a, a dense, wet environment and they wouldn't know how to survive in a desert. 
Whereas if we introduced them to somewhere like Wilson's Prom or somewhere in the east coast of Australia, it's habitat that they're familiar with, they'd be able to find food, they'd be able to find shelter, and they'd be they'd do much better. So that's a, a big consideration is how the animal will do in the environment that you're introducing it into. You don't want to put it into a completely inappropriate environment. And But the second and probably more important consideration is what effect the animal is going to have on the ecosystem as well. So obviously the devil is a top-order predator, so if you introduce it into an area that's got loads of critically endangered ground nesting birds or something then it's going to be an absolute disaster it'll just go around eating them all and you'll have done well for one species but you'll have completely obliterated another one so and this is something we have a historic track bad track record of in australia if you go back things like cane toads where we introduced cane toads into northern australia to try and control these beetles they had zero effect on the beetles and then they've been spreading across australia since then so that was an unmitigated disaster because they didn't they didn't put very much consideration into what other effects the animals could have. What about if you're um, reintroducing something that humans have made no longer in that area? So, like, mm. Matt Fielding was on the show before. He talked about dwarf emus being in Tasmania yeah, at yeah. one point. You know, should we bring the e- the big emu here instead? Um, and it's an interesting idea. Like, I don't even know if devils were ever on the mainland. But with the issues of uh, translocated cats, didn't they come from... Europe? Yeah, yeah, c- yeah. cats came across you know, with, with Europeans. You'd yeah. think if we were bringing other top predators back to where they should have been and all that kind of stuff, that maybe we'd balance out the harms of generations past. So, uh, f- for one thing, devils did used to occur on the mainland. So, um, they've been restricted to Tasmania for the last about 4,000 years, but they occurred on the mainland before that, and they were relatively widespread in the mainland. And then we think there was a combination of climate change and the... Or the not the, not the current big climate change that we're causing, but a slowly changing climate over time that Australia was becoming drier. And dingoes appeared about the same time as well. They appeared about 8,000 years ago, I think, and then they were possibly having these just incremental effects on the devils in combination with the climate changing to become drier and less appropriate for devils, and that's what drove them extinct on the mainland. But, yeah, that is a consideration there, where because if something has gone extinct somewhere because of human activity if you're translocating it back you have to think about whether the activity that has caused the species to go extinct in the first place is still occurring or not so the, the thing about like koalas and oh, but being introduced to tasmania like we have ongoing issues with conservation of other species that rely on um the same tree hollows habitat, the yeah. same habitat yeah similar habitat that we're not adequately protecting in some cases so if we're introducing another species into that is it, is it going to do any better than it is on the mainland at the time that's something we have to think about like is it going to be any better off down here than it would on the mainland or is it just going to encounter the same problems because if it is then um you're not doing anything particularly productive are you so now didn't they recently put uh devils on the mainland in like a wildlife park or something like i mean it was like oh we're sending devils to new south wales and it was like in the fine print yeah <laughs> no that's that's right so th- th- so there's been big um efforts to have a big captive bred population of devils since devil facial tumor disease came in because we wanted a um a fallback if we lost devils in the wild that there were there was a population of captive bred devils if devils disappeared and then we could reintroduce them into tasmania they didn't have dftd anymore then we would have that a good genetic base to fall back on as well, that they were being captive bred in lots of different places. As a behavioural ecologist, though, how much is that, you know, oh, yeah, you don't have the disease, but now I, you're in an enclosure and a controlled environment. How much is that going to change potentially their behaviour over time? So it depends on what kind of behaviours you're talking about. Because devils are probably 
roam wider than they normally would being an enclosure that size besides by the time you have that many devils in an enclosure because mm. devils can can move up to like 50 kilometers in a night so they can roam over pretty wide areas at times when like males are looking for mates or looking for new areas to settle or something so you're definitely affecting behaviors like that but they're, they're normal day-to-day behavior going around and foraging and finding dead animals in the environment interacting with one another that's going to be continuing relatively as normal i suppose are they fed you this is a good question. I'm not Pavlov's sure. Pavlov's dogs <laughs> kind of thing where they're going <laughs> to... I imagine... So for most reintroductions, if you introduce an animal, they tend to supplementarily feed them for uh, at least for a while until they're sure that they're able to forage for themselves and find food in the environment. So they'll provide them with, with a devil. You would just chuck a, a kangaroo carcass or something in there and that would, that would feed the devils pretty well. I wonder if you could comment on the role of this kind of conservation of species within captive enclosed upbringings and its role while we face the very real consequences of climate change if we don't take immediate action. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely plays an important role here. So you're saying that they're in this kind of captive environment, but in a lot of places they have these big fence enclosures that are free of introduced predators feral cats um, are a massive problem on here and in mainland australia that they've obliterated a lot of the small mammal fauna and some other things as well so the idea behind a lot of these fenced enclosures places like arid recovery and there's mulligans flat in, in the act that are introducing things like bilbies and betongs if they introduce them outside those fences they would last about 20 minutes um, so it, it plays a really valuable role in making sure that we still have these species in a, not completely wild, but as close as you're going to get while not being in the face of these dangers that are going to wipe them out very quickly. And making sure that we still have things like bilbies and, and betongs um, popping around in the mainland. So it, it, it plays, a, plays a big role, I think, in making sure that we continue these populations into the future. It's not a long-term solution to... Um, making the environment what it used to be, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a stopgap. In conservation, is there a view to ever eradicate introduced species? Oh yeah, that, I mean that's the that's the um, the goal in a lot of cases. But in so many cases, it's just got to the point where it's difficult. Like the cane toads that we were talking about earlier, wiping out the cane toads is impossible at this point. They've spread across pretty much the entire east to west of Australia in the top end. We're not going to eradicate cane toads. And feral cats are across the entirety of mainland Australia. We're not going to eradicate feral cats. It, they're, they're difficult to, to trap in the first place. They're very intelligent animals. Um, eradication is impossible at this point. So in a small scale, so you can do it on, if you have like a small island, they've done things like rat eradications and cat eradications on small islands. That's doable. But by the time you have a very large area, it's just becoming... You're always chasing your tail. Yeah, you're chasing your tail the entire time. Too many animals, too much space. It's just yeah, become impossible. <laughs> So you've got to nip these things in the bud quickly. And that's what we've definitely not done in the cases of the animals that have got out of control that are are causing issues in in Australia and beyond. Well, thank you, David, for an absolutely fascinating episode. And thank you to my co-host, Kate Johnson, for linking us up and preparing the episode today. My name's Neve Chapman, and you've been listening to That's What I Call Science. We love bringing you big signs from the small island and hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please do get in touch with us across our social media channels. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. But we'd really love if you could listen wherever you get your podcast, subscribe, and leave us a review so we can spread the good word of science to even more people. This is the last episode of the year, so best wishes to the holidays for all of you. Thank you and goodbye. This programme was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. You've been listening to That's What I Call Science, brought to your station and across the nation via the Community Radio Network. 
You can find That's What I Call Science on all major podcast streaming services and social media platforms. Like and subscribe for on-demand science updates from the team. That's What I Call Science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. Head to edgeradio.org.au for more information on how you can support community radio. GemMaker are a proud sponsor of That's What I Call Science. GemMaker provide expert advice, services and training to commercialise new knowledge and technologies. Go to gemmaker.com.au for more information.